0: Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work.
1: Colvitz was interested in those who were left behind the widows, the mothers, the children.
0: In this episode, I speak with the distinguished art collector, Dr. Richard Sims and Getty Research Institute Exhibitions Coordinator, Krista Obi about the exhibition, to Kolwitz Prince, Process, Politics. Dr. Richard Sims was born in New Orleans in 1926, graduated from Xavier University, served in the U.S. Army during the Second World War, took his dental degree from Howard University, and then settled in Los Angeles, where he's worked for more than 60 years. Over that same period of time, Dr. Sims has built a renowned collection of modern master prints, especially those of the expressive, realist artist Keta Kollwitz. Kollwitz was born in 1867 and died in 1945. She came from a politically active socialist family and began drawing lessons when she was 12 years old. She is best known for her prints and drawings, which often focus on difficult subjects such as hunger and death. Her work is the subject of an important and moving exhibition at the Getty Research Institute, titled Captain Colwitz, Prints, Process, Politics, drawn from the more than 650 prints and drawings Dr. Sims gave to the Getty in 2016. I recently toured the exhibition with Dr. Sims and the Getty Research Institute's Exhibitions Coordinator, Krista Obie. We recorded this podcast in the exhibition galleries. Thank you, Richard and Krista, for joining me on this podcast. Richard, you were born and went to college in New Orleans. Tell us what life was like for you in those early years in the 1920s,
2: 30s, and 40s. I was born in 1926. I went to college in New Orleans, 1942. I was 16. They couldn't afford to send me to college. But the university gave the incoming freshmen tests in English, in French, and in math. And the three highest scores among the freshmen got their tuition for free. And so I figured out which one I wanted to take, And I took English. And uh, I took that test. And um, I won one of the three scholarships that were given in English. Then I stayed there until December 1944 when I was 18 and I was drafted. So that was at Xavier University, Louisiana. Yes. And... um, I stayed in college on an accelerated program uh, because it was during the wartime and every college university was speeding up the degrees. I then went first to Camp Chaffee, Arkansas, why it's an induction center. And then by train from there through St. Louis to Fort Dix, New Jersey. And I was put in a medical detachment. Each one of the medical detachments had a black officer as its physician. We were put on a troop train from there to go to Seattle and thence by boat to the Pacific. And uh, it took us 30 days to go to, uh, I remember the ship, SS George Flavel. It was a converted uh, tanker of some sort, a product carrying ship. And uh, we left there and we stopped in Guam and then landed in Saipan. And I was in Saipan for about two years. I was a staff sergeant in charge of a medical detachment. And the physician, by that time, had changed from black officers to white officers. And um, with the dropping of the bomb by Harry Truman, the war ended for us. And so uh, I uh, was discharged, uh, sent back to Fort Sam Houston for discharge. And um, when I left there, I came home, and I worked at a medical supply house called Aloe, A-L-O-E, a St. Louis company. And because I had experience in chemicals and things like that, I was put in charge of the laboratory part of it, the equipment. I got out of the service in '44 Um, there about 45 went back to college and finished a year and and I was done with college I graduated in 1947 and then I went to dental school at um, Howard University in Washington D.C. And um, I was practicing general practice with minor reference to oral surgery I stayed in New Orleans for roughly uh, two years uh, from 50 to 51. I did not find Louisiana the right place to practice. So I get a, an invitation from a man in California and uh, his name was Max Shane, S-C-H-O-E-N, who uh, wanted to know if I wanted to practice with him. And um, after listening to what he had in mind, I decided to move to California. So I come to California and he was starting a practice in a working-class subdivision of Los Angeles called Wilmington. And um, the objective that we had after we started uh, was to work on longshoremen, which is uh, similar to Kowitz's husband, who worked for tailors in a what is called a tailor's cranking house. And then we decided to move uh, as we got busier. And we bought land in a place called Harbor City, which is next door to Wilmington. And then finally, we decided we needed an orthodontist because uh, we were a revolving door for orthodontists. And uh, the objective was to educate each one of us in different specialties so that we could continue to practice what we needed. Wilmington is not a place where people in Los Angeles wanted to go. So we had to educate our own.
0: Right, right. Okay, uh, Richard, now tell us about how you first became involved with arts.
2: I was introduced to the arts when I was in college. The Catholic college I went to had a splendid library detached from the administration building. And you walked in a side door. And to the left, there was another door that was kept locked. And uh, then you turn and go upstairs upstairs. And on isolated occasions, the locked door was open. I walked in on one of those occasions when it was open, and I saw black American sculpture, specifically an artist named Richmond Barthé, B A R T H E. And mentally it registered as to what it was. And then I went on upstairs and did what I was in the library to do, and uh, then I left. There was something else that introduced me to it. There used to be an ad in national publications uh, called Draw Me, and it was for an art school in either Wisconsin or Minnesota. And uh, if you could draw this picture and send it to them, they would let you know whether you had the talent to be an artist. I participated in this Draw Me thing. I must have been 13 through 16, and um, my grandmother had an enormous influence on me. And I had to read to her every day, and she read to me. And she was not an educated woman. Uh, she was a domestic. In other words, she worked for a Caucasian some other place, and uh, she walked with a rock. And she was one of six children, and they were born all in Nacogdoches, Louisiana, north of New Orleans, but south of. Uh, Shreveport, the uh, border of uh, Arkansas and Louisiana, and I never knew her family, but I had to read to her every day, and she read to me, and uh, she talked to me a lot about um, what I should do or wanted to do, and uh, I told her that I wanted to be an artist. And she uh, spoke to her daughter, not yelled to her, my mother. And she said, Minnie, her name was Louise, but my grandmother called her Minnie. And she said, Minnie, did you hear what this boy had just said? This boy said he wants to be an artist. She then turned to me and she said, boy, you are going to become a doctor. And that was the end of that conversation.
0: Okay, now I recall though very clearly that you and I first met here in Los Angeles in the 1980s. I was head of the Grunewald Center for the Graphic Arts and you were already a notable collector of prints and drawings by Kjeta Kollwitz. This is not to say that you didn't collect works by other artists, but you had a very demonstrated interest in works by Kollwitz. When did you first begin collecting prints and
2: drawings? I had always been interested in art. And I went to museums here and um, there was a dealer on La Cienega Boulevard whose name was Orel P. Reed. O-P, the initials he went by, Reed. And he did um, German printmakers. Another person involved in it was Zeitlin and Verbrugge. And across the street from that was a heritage gallery who dealt in a variety of artists, including black artists. And so the man who owned it was Benjamin Horowitz. And um, I bought my first works from him. When, what year was that? Um, probably 61. Now, in my early years of practice, I was collecting black American artists. And um, my wife and I went to Boston for me to attend a course in growth and development. And it was my first opportunity to go into the MFA. And that's the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. In Boston, that is correct. And there I saw Winslow Homer's treatment of black people and Thomas Aiken's treatment of black people. And um, I decided, after seeing those two men And the work they did, I could not afford to collect black artists only. And so I went to O.P. Reed's gallery, and he showed me a dura. And it was a heraldic dura, a coat of arms with cock, a rooster sitting on top of it. And I had no idea what it was, and I had no books, so I went to the public library downtown. I went after office hours. And by the time I studied whatever books there were in a main library, uh, public library in Los Angeles, I then realized that that was not a bad work. I should buy it. And when I went back, it was gone. Oh, no. Well, that's
0: the plight of a collector, I guess, always remembering the one that got away. So, so then what, what was the first
2: Katakowicz work that you bought? Um, if you look in my collection... There is a long something called uh, a triptych and it's called Threatener, the downtrodden, which is the title of it. The downtrodden was a mixed subject. On the left side of it, as you view it, was a man standing and he was handing his wife a lariat or a rope for which to Uh, hang the child with. The inference was that this child was going to die or had already died. I should emphasize to our podcast listeners that we're looking
0: at the catalog of the exhibition that a print reproduced in the catalog. It's a triptych that is a print on three sheets of paper titled The Downtrodden, dated 1900. It's an exquisite uh, etching dry point and aquatint of dead and dying, suffering people. Now,
2: which sheet of the three did you buy? I bought the left-hand side one-third of it. That plate had been separated, and uh, you could buy the left half of that being different from the right half. There's a very, a great difference between the subject matter of of this. That's the first time
0: I'd seen her work. So why did you buy the left-hand side, and not the middle and right ones? It wasn't for
2: sale. It had been severed. You know, it had been cut apart. But what was it about this print that attracted you? The subject matter. Uh, it was unlike the other two-thirds of the plate. You can see that for yourself. This is a very realistic part of the plate on this side, and the other two-thirds of it are not as realistic as that.
0: Did you know then that you would collect much more of Colwitz's work?
2: Oh, I can't say I knew that that's where I was headed. Uh, But let me say this to you. By comparison... I've never been interested in Mary Cassatt because of uh, the difference in the subject matter. Right, right. When did you
0: buy your second Colwitz print?
2: I don't even know what it was.
0: <laughs> I see, I see. Now, Colwitz made sculpture too, didn't she? Did, did you ever think of collecting her sculpture or the sculpture of her, her contemporaries? She did sculpture.
2: And her mentor was um, Ernst Borlaug. And uh, people have asked me, why didn't I collect Kolwitz sculpture? But Ernst Barlach was, um, for me and for many other people, uh, the sculpture of Germany of that period. Yeah, with that vigorous expressionist
0: sensibility. I mean, uh, the subject matter, too, of hardworking people, it's so much like the work of Kolwitz.
2: Yeah, the, the same subject matter. A group of them are put up for sale. At some gallery in central Germany. And uh, that was the first time I'd ever seen anything offered for sale in that quantity. And then it disappeared from the market. The city that barlack lived in uh, wanted it all. And so they wouldn't let it be sold.
0: What, what about other artists? Um, when speaking of Colbert's, one thinks of Van Gogh, for example. Did you ever get interested in his prints?
2: Well, Vincent van Gogh is, um, he comes at a later time for me in my life. I was interested in Germans going way back. And Vincent van Gogh, I did buy one, a drawing. It is a portrait of his psychiatrist, a portrait of Dr. Gachet. I um, had an opportunity to buy it within the last year or within maybe a little more than a year. And um, I've given it to you, <laughs> to the Getty. I had bought it, and it was already here, and I decided uh, I would like to give it in memory of Deborah Merrow. Oh, Richard, that's,
0: that's so kind of you. Thank you very much. Deborah would have been very grateful for that, so thank you. Now let, let's go on to the second gallery. This gallery includes prints from Colwitz's cycle titled The Peasants' War. I think they're quintessential Colwitz prints in subject matter and technique. Krista, tell us how you began to install this exhibition.
1: Well, we had so many incredible works in this collection from which to choose. So it's almost 300 prints and drawings by Kohlwitz. Um And so we wanted to show a, a representative sampling of um, her prints, of her preparatory drawings, of rejected versions, of working proofs. And really show our visitors Colvitt's thinking things through on paper. We were interested in sequences of images and showing a series of works that show her starting with one composition, rejecting it, and then ending up somewhere completely different. Her Weaver's Revolt Cycle was her first cycle of prints, and that brought her considerable renown early in her career um, in the 1890s. So this is the second cycle that she produced. It's a series of um, seven works, and this is the first decade of the 20th century. Yeah,
0: uh, Richard, Now, how long did it take you to acquire all of these sheets from the series The Peasants' War?
2: Um, in posing the question, you're not taking into account the fact that you buy what's available. You don't have uh, the opportunity to go back to the first as opposed to something else. You buy what's available for you at the time, whatever comes up. Uh, I see that's probably the case. But give our podcast listeners a sense of the imagery of the prints that we're looking at. Uh, it is a peasant woman looking at men who are plowing a the field. They have harnesses on their backs, the figure behind has the working part of the plow right here. And they have it across their shoulders. And this is a man with a hand trowel or a plow. Yeah, Krista.
1: There was something about the um, image that uh, we're looking at first here on the wall, the lithograph showing a woman and the two men are are pulling the plow before her. Um, She wasn't satisfied with the image. She wanted to reduce it to a simpler composition. And so... In the later version, where uh, it's an etching, the woman is no longer shown actively leading the men with the plow, um, but she's shown uh, standing in the foreground. And then in the later um, composition for the plowman, the woman uh, does not appear at all. Uh, For the sheet that we're looking at right now, the plowman, which is the first sheet in the Peasants' War Cycle, she actually starts in lithography, and then rejects this version, uh, and then turns to etching. I think etching um, and in mixing these intaglio processes really allowed her to um, build up these layers of tone and texture to, to give um, a real mood to the works in the Peasants' War, and it was the right visual language for her in the first um, decade of the 20th century.
0: Let's move on to the second sheet in the cycle, called Raped. We have a preparatory drawing for the print, and the print itself here on display. Krista, could you describe the print for us?
1: It's a a challenging subject. Um, We see this woman's body sort of splayed out in this landscape. The Peasants' War. The subject comes from the 16th century Peasants' War, and so Kolwitz is, is giving us sort of a modern reimagining. We are seeing um, peasants and workers pushed to their very breaking point. We've already seen the plowmen, the oppression, the suffering, and then in raped we see how this woman has suffered. And it's it's going to be experiences like this that are going to lead the peasants to uh, revolt in the Peasants' War
0: no, the, the subject matter seems to foreshadow the violence of the First World War, which will, of course, begin in less than a decade.
1: Absolutely. I think she's just showing the, the horror, the brutality, the violence, um, the suffering of um, the working class.
2: In response to the War of 1917, she lost a child. And um, she has pictures of mourning parents that are bronze in a cemetery in Belgium. She did many pictures of the parents, uh, the parents affected by the loss of uh, that child in the war. Yeah. Now, what
0: about these two impressions of the print titled Arming in a Vault from 1902? which is the one on the left, the uh, lithograph, is bold in its use of color, this bright, fiery oranges and
2: reds. What can you tell us about this print? This particular print... Two New York dealers bought it for me in uh, at an auction in Europe. And uh, I knew it was coming up. And so they were authorized to just do whatever they wanted to do to get it. This collection was from a woman who hid it for... It was in a room, and she built a wall so that nobody would know that there was a room behind that. And this was one of those. Where, Where was that? It was in Munich, I think it was in Munich. Uh
0: Now let's look over here at one of the most renowned of Colwitz's prints, sharpening the scythe. Krista, could you describe it for us?
1: Well, um, for the third sheet in the cycle, um, which is sharpening the scythe, we actually begin with a working proof for the um, rejected version for this sheet. And it was called Inspiration. We have two impressions on the wall here. And Kolvitz originally had envisioned it as this sort of male allegorical presence who is inspiring this peasant woman to rise up, to take her scythe, to turn it into a weapon of war. So we're, we're seeing this moment where he is, Leading her into um, her decision to rebel and revolt. Kolvitz tweaks this composition a little bit and actually shows the woman um, her hand on the side taking some agency. Um, Ultimately, however, Colvitz rejects this version of the composition and changes the format quite a bit from a a more vertical, rectangular composition to a square format where she's only focusing on this peasant woman who is now holding the scythe in front of her her face. Yes, exactly. She's sharpening it. In the first print that we have here on the wall, you can see that her arm is draped over the blade of the scythe. In the Sims collection, there's a preparatory drawing I was showing the woman with her arm on the blade of the scythe. So Kovitz wants to um, make the scene a bit more active and actually um, instead of having the arm draping over the blade shows in these later impressions, the woman is actually sharpening the blade with the wedding stone. So a much more active pose here. She is turning this scythe into what will become a weapon of war. She has decided uh, that she is going to participate in the rebellion in the revolt.
0: Now she was herself a pacifist, isn't that right, Richard? She was a pacifist. Krista,
1: she loses her youngest son in 1914, in the um, early months of World War One, and then her grandson in World War Two. I think it's 1942 or 1943. She
0: didn't survive the wars. She died before it ended, right?
1: She dies shortly before the end of World War Two. Yeah. Something that um, Dr. Sims talks about quite frequently is that Kolvitz was interested in those who were left behind the widows, the mothers, the children, and that Colvitz isn't showing moments of great action. Fields.
2: You never see battlefields. You never see, as she's just said, any action. She is concentrating on the ones that are left behind, whether it's the children or the guys of alcoholics or whether it is the children that are home. To have a child die in the war is a tragedy of the utmost. Yeah, it her. surely is.
0: and It makes me think, though, these, these scenes of all these vulnerable women and children, and mothers and children, it sort of make me wonder if part of their attraction to you might not be related to the stories your grandmother told you of the circumstances in which she lived and worked in the South when you were a child.
2: Is there anything to that? Well, I don't relate it to that at all. In other words, my mother and grandmother lived together and my father lived in Chicago. And my understanding is that his wife, my mother, her mother got ill and she would go to New Orleans to take care of her. And he said he would join her soon, and he never did. I met him once when I was in seventh or eighth grade. A woman took my brother and myself to Chicago on a train to see him. And uh, My feeling is that he did not want to live in the South. That was my real thought about it. That uh, if they had stayed in Chicago, he would have stayed with her, or they together. But they were separated, they were never divorced. And I believe that it's due to um, him not wanting to live in the South. As a child, I'm glad I lived in the South. I wouldn't want to live in the North. Uh, I see too much of what it does. We had a house with a porch and a swing and flower pots uh, and a backyard with chickens in it. Uh, and a neighbor down the street had a bigger yard with more chickens in it. But when I went to visit my father, he worked in a grocery store. And as i gotten older, I realized that his position in that grocery store, when I think back on it, is that he was bagging groceries, and the guy that's bagging the groceries isn't making a lot of money. So I'm happy that I grew up in the South. I enjoyed it. Well, Richard, thank you. Thank you so much. Richard and Krista,
0: thank you both for all the time you've given us on this podcast, but Richard, thank you especially for your giving your collection to the Getty Research Institute, where it will be kept and made available to the public forever. So thank
2: you both very much, Richard. Thanks again. Thank you. I enjoyed it, and uh, uh, I, I must part with it, and so I'm kind of grateful that I, that I found a place for it.
0: Ketik Prince Process Politics will be on view at the Getty Center through March 29, 2020. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, Composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu podcasts. Thanks for listening.